Why in the world would we ever want God to lead us to the cross? The cross is, the cross is a place of death. The cross was a despicable place. And yet, it's only at the place of death where the God we worship transforms it into life. And only God can do that. And that's, that just tells us who he is. And, and I want you to see who this God is that we worship, that we sing, lead me to the cross. I want you to see that this morning. If this is your first Sunday here at Windsor Road, this is a great Sunday for you to be here. We are in a series of messages over Paul's letter to the Philippians in the New Testament. And it's a wonderful passage of scripture that Michelle read earlier for us here in our service. It's a passage of scripture that tells us who our God is, what he's like, his character, What picture do you have of God, and where did you get that picture? Some of us got our pictures of God from maybe the church where we grew up, or maybe the pastor at the church, or maybe the tone of the leadership kind of set the picture of God before you. Where did you get your picture of God? Was it from maybe your parents, your father, or your mother? Where did you get your picture of God? Is it from media? Is it from movies? Is it from uh, media preachers, some of those pictures? Well, these pictures, some of them are good and some of them not so good. Well, this morning, our passage of Scripture gives us the clearest picture of who this amazing God is that we worship, that we would say, lead me to the cross. If you have your Bibles, I'd like you to turn to the New Testament book of Philippians Philippians chapter 1, verse 27, that's where Michelle began reading our verses this morning. And we're sort of picking up these verses in the middle of Paul's letter to the Philippians. And so, you know, if I were to write a letter to my wife, Sarah, and, you know, you started reading it on page 3 of 50 pages, you know, uh, you might wonder what's the context, what's the story behind that letter? Verse 27 begins, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Well, okay, that, what's the context? What's the story about that? Well, here's the story. The story is that around the year A.D. 52, the Apostle Paul came to the Roman colony of Philippi, which is a city in Greece, and it was the site of the conclusive battle of Rome's civil war uh, in which the Roman Republic then became an empire under the leadership of Octavian or Augustus Caesar. And so as a, as a reward to his faithful soldiers and loyal subjects, Augustus Caesar granted these warriors, these soldiers, uh, two gifts. First, he gave them citizenship. And secondly, he gave them property and land. 
And so they then inhabited this city. They were fiercely patriotic because they were loyal to their uh, Augustus Caesar. And uh, they valued their citizenship highly. Uh, About 40% of Philippi, they were citizens. What were the others? Non-citizens. They didn't have the rights. Many of them were slaves. And it was in this city where the Apostle Paul came with the gospel around the year A.D. 52. He started a church, and it was a diverse church. It was a church that had as its charter members um, uh, uh, an executive of high-end clothing. Her name was Lydia, and she sold purple cloth, very expensive. And then there was a former slave girl who had been demon-possessed, and then there was a crusty old jailer. I mean, you can't get people from uh, any more three different backgrounds than that. They were the start of this church. And there was a special relationship that the Apostle Paul had with this uh, congregation. There was chemistry between uh, the two of them. There was affection, deep loving affection uh, between Paul and the church at Philippi. Paul moved on, started other churches across the empire. But if you fast forward about 10 years, the Apostle Paul then found himself in prison in Rome under house arrest. So we're about the year AD 62. And Paul is chained to this Roman guard. Night and day, every six hours, there's a Roman guard. Now, Paul had to pay for his expenses. He lived in a rented house, Acts 28 tells us. Paul had to pay the rent. And if Paul had any food, well, it had to come out of his pocket. Well, The Philippians heard about his plight, so they sent a very large financial gift to help Paul while he was there under house arrest to pay for his living expenses and to pay for uh, food and so that he could get by there. But every six hours, there's a Roman guard that changes, and, and they sent this gift through One of their own leaders, a guy by the name of Epaphroditus, we'll read about him next week in Philippians chapter 2. They're concerned about Paul. They're worried that perhaps the gospel is not making progress, that Paul can't do what he does best, start churches and preach Christ. They're worried that the gospel is in chains because Paul is in chains. And so they want to know how Paul is doing. Well, Paul, having received this large gift, is just so elated, um, he sends them a thank you note. And that's the letter to Philippians. And in verses 1 through 11, he tells them how much he appreciates and how affectionate he feels for their partnership in the gospel. And then in verses 12 through 26, Paul says, now here's how I'm doing. Don't worry about me. Even though I'm in chains attached to this guard, man, they keep changing guards, and I keep preaching Christ. And as a result, throughout the whole Praetorian Guard, everybody knows why I'm in chains. In fact, some of those have become Christians. Philippians 4, 22, all the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. So Paul says, don't you worry about me. 
I'm doing fine. I love Jesus. He is my life for me to live as Christ, to die as gain. And if I continue living here on earth in the flesh, I'm just going to preach Christ and plant churches. That's how it's going to be. And that's my joy. And if I die, I get to be with Jesus in heaven. And that's my joy. Either way is a win-win situation for me. And I will rejoice, Paul says. Listen, you will never find joy pursuing joy. You will never find happiness pursuing happiness. You won't. Well, I'm different. No, you're not. I'm sorry. Joy and happiness is about who you worship. That's just a worship issue. Paul says, I'm putting Jesus first. So it doesn't matter whether I'm in jail or not. I have Jesus. I have joy. That's how I'm doing. So enough of me. And then he starts with verse 27. Now about you. That's where Michelle started reading. Paul says, only let your life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. What's that look like? Well, it looks like this. Keep reading. A life worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ? A life worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ is a life where the believers as a community, as a congregation, here it is, stand firm as one. Stand firm as one. That, so that whether I'm with you or absent, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit. That's the challenge that Paul gives this congregation. I want you to stand firm as one. Uh, in the midst of disappointing situations, stand firm as one. In the midst of discouragement, stand firm as one. In the midst of, of, of extra grace required people, stand firm as one. Stand firm as one, stand firm uh, in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, not frightened. Stand firm as one. And because Paul is speaking to Philippians, he's using vernacular that the Philippians could grasp and get. You see, in verse 27, if you look at some of you in your uh, Bibles, you'll notice there's a footnote in verse 27. And verse 27 literally reads, only behave as citizens worthy of the gospel. The New Testament uh, comes to us by the way of the Greek language and literally verse 27 says behave as citizens. Why does he say citizens? Because he's talking to a colony of Rome and he's reminding these Christians that you are a colony within a colony. You're a colony of heaven. Your citizenship is in heaven. So let your lives reflect your true allegiance to the true emperor over heaven and earth. And that happens by standing firm. That's a military term. There were families of military veterans there. You stand firm. Hold the line. Stand firm. And then there's, as you strive side by side, huh? lock your shields. Be as one. Striving together. We're not to strive against each other. We're to strive shoulder to shoulder. 
And then, not frightened. Oh, that's a beautiful word picture. That's a word picture. Um, Military officers would use that word to describe war horses in the cavalry that would, you know, stampede the enemy. Some of those horses would just bull right over the enemy like they were supposed to do. Some of them, once they got to the front line and they were galloping, they would become terrorized by the carnage and chaos of battle and they would just pull back. (laughs) Sounded just like that. (laughs) Not frightened in any way. You stand firm together. You strive side by side. And don't you be intimidated. Don't you be intimidated at all. You be united. Stand firm as one. And echoes of unity continue on in chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. You see that, don't you? Paul says, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind, unity. Stand firm together. You know why, don't you? Because you see, when the world sees unity, when, listen, when p- there is few, there's few things more attractive and magnetic than unity, right? Um, 50 years ago in Washington, D.C., hundreds of thousands of people gathered for Martin Luther King Jr.'s speech, I Have a Dream. And um, a woman who was in her 20s at the time, she's now in her 70s, looks back on that time, and she says, there was such unity. There was such solidarity. And it attracted the attention of the world. Unity does that. When people see a servant leader of a husband shepherding, and providing, and protecting, and taking initiative for his wife and family. And then when they see that wife showering him with admiration and respect, my goodness, they see that dance of unity. And it's like, I want that. I want that. When you go into a company, And all the employees, they know what the company mission is. They know why they're there. They know the purpose of their job and how their job fits in with the overall mission. And and people come into that, they can just sense it. They can feel it. It's like, I want to be a part of that, right? And yeah, even when we all put on orange and paint the hall or whatever the thing's called now, orange, they're just like, wow, I want to be a part of that. Unity is attractive. And as attractive as those pictures are, what we're learning in God's word is that when God's people worship together and serve together and love one another, when they participate uh, in 2009 weekend of service and 2011 weekend of service and, and when we uh, show up at Ebony's house for the Habitat Project and progress is being made and Eric is doing such a fantastic job leading that brother and, and Lisa's going to be coming up here in a little bit to give us an update on that but when God's people see that and when they see, uh, when they see the, the life change that's taking place and celebrate recovery every Friday story after story And when we hear a faith story up here, and then afterwards you all come up and just, you know, gang tackle that beloved in prayer, 
People look and they say, I want that. There's nothing like unity. It is attractive and magnetic. It's life-changing. It is. And that's why Paul says, I want you to stand firm in one spirit. Unity is what Jesus Christ prayed for about us the night before he died. The night before he went to the cross, he prayed for you. He prayed for our church. He did. In John chapter 17, this is what Jesus said. Now, he talked, he prayed about himself. He's getting ready to go to the cross. He prayed for, his, for the apostles. Many things concerning them. But one thing he prayed for us. Just one thing, and here it is. John 17, 22 and 23. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one. Even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one. Why? Here it is. So that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you have loved me. When, God, when the world sees the unity and the standing firm and the striving side by side and the not being frightened of God's people, I'm telling you, it gets their attention. John White is an author who wrote these words. The church that convinces men and women that there is a God in heaven is a church that manifests what only a heavenly God can do. Unite human beings in heavenly love. Whenever the sign of loving unity exists, there the world will believe. Nothing, get this, nothing on earth convinces the world or awakens its craving for God like the discovery of Christian brothers and sisters who love each other. It's attractive. It's beautiful. It's magnetic. That's why we need to stand firm as one. Okay? Amen. Well, the opposite of that is also true. Just as unity attracts, disunity repels. Yeah. And that leads us to a problem because, you see, Paul, Paul mentions this several times. I mean, it's not like he mentions it once and then gets on to something else. We kind of see this importance of unity showing up again in chapter 4 where Paul has to appeal to two leaders whose disunity is so obvious and so uncomfortable he has to call them out by name in the Bible. I wouldn't mind my name in the Bible, but not for that reason. He does. There's disunity that's going on. There's divisiveness. And, and, and why is that? Well, Paul tells us in chapter 2, verse 3, Paul tells us that the spirit of disunity comes from two viruses. There are two unity killers, he says. Two words, actually three in our English, but work with me here. Again, two Greek words, and here are the words. The words, well, Michelle read the words, selfish ambition, that's rivalry, and then conceit. And some of your versions, the King James Version, has the word vainglory. Vainglory. So there's, on the one hand, rivalry, 
On the other hand, vain glory. Let's use those words. First, rivalry. Rivalry, what is that? Well, rivalry is a spirit of fighting, you know? It's a spirit of fighting. Uh, uh, you know, some people, do you know some people, they just feel like they have to have an opponent? They just, they just gotta have to have someone to fight. They gotta have an argument. It's a, it's a, rivalry is a spirit of self-promotion because you, see, you gotta have an opponent and what do we do to opponents? We beat them. That's what we do. We win against them. So it's a spirit that wants control. Rivalry is a spirit that drives me to want to be right all the time. Rivalry is a spirit that makes me want to have the upper hand because I got to win. Question, what is it that determines your relationship with people? Is it the truth or is it your needs? Now, if the truth governs your relationship with people, then you can have a respectable relationship with people, even if you happen to disagree with them, you know, because you can reason with them and think through and maybe agree to disagree, you know. But if your needs take the day in your relationship, then you're going to be a fighter. You're going to be a hyper fighter. You're going to give in to this thing called rivalry, selfish ambition. Because you see, then, you know, by definition, my group and my needs and my ideas and my party, well, we're right, you know? We're right. That's rival- Rivalry uh, is something, rivalry is someone who refuses to let thought or reason govern your relationships. And so as a result, if you have a spirit of rivalry, you're always going to take things personally. Always going to take things personally, you know? Rivalry, rivalry makes you think that the issue on the table is really about you. That's what rivalry does. Rivalry makes you ask, what's this doing to my pride, my ego, my reputation, my standing, my identity? How does this make me look? That's a spirit of rivalry. And this kind of thing was going on in the Philippian church. And this was one of the healthiest churches. <laughs> so it's out there. I wonder, I wonder if the spirit of rivalry lurks in our halls. And here's the deal. Here's the deal. When you're standing outside of disunity, when you're looking at people who are disunited, you know, the answer to you seems so simple, doesn't it? Seems so very simple. The, you, you, just, you know, Paul says you just need to stand firm. You just need to stand firm. But see, when you're on the inside, when you're on the inside, you're going, well, you know, you just, you just don't understand. You just don't understand. This matters. This is, this is pers- forget the truth. This is personal, you know. Um, while I was studying my Greek and the commentaries in preparation for this message, it made me think of Star Trek. The old Star Trek, you know, one during the Johnson administration, that's Star Trek, yeah. There's a great episode in Star Trek where Frank Gorshin, you know who Frank Gorshin was, he was the Riddler in the original Batman series, which was also in the Johnson administration. (laughs) Frank Gorshin plays this, you know, other earthly character. And uh, he's on this planet, and his people group and another people group are at war with each other. And Captain Kirk's trying to broker peace between the two. 
And it's just not going anywhere. And finally, Captain Kirk says, well, I don't, you know, I don't know what the problem is, but, you know, you and your enemy, you're, you're the same species. Frank Gorshin says, what? What? Captain. Captain. Really? How can you say that? Can't you see? I'm black on the right side and white on the left side. And my enemy is black on the left side and white on the right side. Clearly, subspecies. <laughs> Kirk and Spock, you know, kind of look at each other, you know. Whoa. And they try to appeal to reason and logic as only a Vulcan would do. It's not going anywhere. It's not going. Why? Because they have a spirit of rivalry. This is why political discussions get so heated, right? Those Democrats, they just don't get it. Those Republicans, they don't get it. It happens with professional teams. I moved here 24 years ago. One of the first questions people ask me, well, Randy, are you going to be a Cubs fan or a Cards fan? What? <laughs> are you going to be a Cubs fan or a Cards fan? Come on. You, what? Well, uh, well, who's buying the tickets? I mean, I'm what? You know? I mean, just... Really? Well, you can't be both. you got to choose. Well, come on. What do you mean i got to choose? What are you talking about? <laughs> really? <laughs> come on. And then someone would say to me, well, hey, wait a minute. What about, what about the Oklahoma Sooners-Texas Longhorn rivalry? What do you got to say about that? And my answer then and now is, hey, that's different. <laughs> that's different. Huh? And, 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 and if you don't understand it, I can't explain it. So, so there. Actually, Paul explains it, doesn't he? Because that leads us to the second word. The second word explains the first word. Why is there rivalry? Paul says, vain glory. Vain glory, that's the word conceit. Vain, he gets to the bottom of it here. Vain, uh, uh, the original word is kenadoxion. Kenadoxion. Kena, empty, doxion, glory, doxology. Doxology, the word of glory. What's the, when we sing the doxology, what is that? That's the glory word. That's what that is. Kenadoxion is empty glory, vain glory. Someone starving for glory. Do nothing out of glory hunger. That's what Paul says here. See, human beings are hungry for glory. We're, we're glory junkies, aren't we? We are. And the, the worst thing that can happen to us, the worst thing to happen is not to be persecuted. The worst thing is to be ignored. The worst thing is not to be hated. The worst thing is to be overlooked, to be treated like you don't matter. Yeah. You see that movie Breach a few years ago? It's about the worst uh, intelligence disaster in U.S. history. Robert Hansen. He's now in prison, supermax, solitary confinement, 23 hours a day. He'll be there until he dies, right? It cost our country billions. And the movie Breach was about how he was caught in the act, all right? 
they had tapped Eric O'Neill to work undercover to uh, bring him down. And there's a very dramatic scene uh, near the end of the movie that really was the turning point. They're out in the woods, and Hanson is under incredible pressure. He is paranoid and suspicious. He's got to make a decision about whether or not he's going to make that last drop before going under. And, and, um, and Eric O'Neill, see, he plays on that. And he says, boss, you're so paranoid. You're so suspicious. But the fact of the matter is, you're not that important to the FBI. You don't matter. And that was what turned him. And he was caught in the act. The human heart, we're wired for glory. Gotta have it. And when we get treated like we're small, we go nuclear, don't we? And it's because we're worried. We're worried that we're gonna live and die and be forgotten. That's what we worry about. And and so we have to cook up success and love and glory. But here's the paradox of that. The more glorious we try to become, the more selfish and proud and arrogant we are, the less people want to hang around us, right? Go ahead. Try it. Always want your way. Always talk about yourself and your issues. Act selfish and self-centered. Go ahead and see the crowd thin. You'll be all by yourself. The more selfish you are, the more ignorable you become and the more forgettable you get. Someone once said, arrogant people are boring. Pride makes people yawn. Our spiritual ancestors, Adam and Eve, they were put in the Garden of Eden by a glorious God who put them there so that they could know him and serve him and make much of him. And when they were in community with our glorious God and looked to him and the focus was upon him, guess what? They were fascinating, weren't they? They were amazing, weren't they? They they had physical glory. They lived forever. They had spiritual glory. They could create beauty and their souls were beautiful because they were full of love and creativity. But then they made a glory grab, didn't they? Apart from their heavenly father, they thought they could be glorious without him. And we've been paying for it. And we do the same too. And life has disintegrated. Why do we fear death? Because of the glory we once had. We were built for glory, but we're decaying. And the more we know we lack glory, the more we try to grasp and grab for it. And and the smaller we feel we are, the, 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 the bigger we try to act. And the more important we try to act, the less important we become. And the cycle continues on and on and on until we're just absolutely nothing. And unless we are rescued from our selfish ambition and vainglory conceit, if we're not rescued from that, Jesus will one day say to us, I don't know you. We will be overlooked by the only eyes that count. And, and we say, well, why would he do that? You do it all the time today. And God does it at the end. That's a problem, isn't it? 
does this sermon get better? (laughs) Oh, yeah. Like right now. The God we worship, the God we worship provides a solution. And Paul tells about that in Philippians 2, verse 5, when he says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Actually, verses 5 through 11 are an early Christian hymn. This was a hymn that Christians would recite or sing when they gathered for worship, like, like we're doing right now. It's a story psalm is what it is. These verses tell about a king who journeyed from his heavenly throne to an earthly cross right back to his heavenly throne. Paul says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, what does that mean? It means that Jesus possessed in full the essence and the privileges and the glory of God. It means that Jesus was already at the top of the ladder. He had the corner office. He was on the supreme throne. He was rich beyond splendor. He possessed all the majesty of glory. He performed all of its functions. He enjoyed all of its prerogatives. He was adored by his father, worshipped by angels, invulnerable to pain, frustration, embarrassment. He lived in unclouded serenity. His supremacy was total. His satisfaction complete. His blessedness perfect. He had secured none of those rights by effort. It was just just simply the way things were and had always been and there was no reason to change. But things did change, didn't they? And why? Because of his great love for us. Jesus came and he did not exploit the position that he had. He did not exploit his deity or status so much so that he was unwilling to rescue us. Verse 6, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. See, he who had the rights surrendered his rights so that we could receive the right of sonship, so that we could be adopted into his kingdom. Jesus had rights. We're not going to get this passage unless we get and understand that Jesus had rights. He had the right to be worshipped, the right to be served, the right to be honored, to be immune from suffering. He had those rights, and he waived those rights. Verse 7 says, he emptied himself. He, see, we grab for glory because we're glory empty, glory starved, but he who is full of glory emptied himself. What does that mean? It means he gave himself. He emptied himself into the very world he created. He who was on the he was on the outside and he came on the inside. Our world, the world of Cubs fans and Cards fans and Sooner fans and Longhorn fans and black and white and Democrat and Republican and Union and management. He came into that world. And he emptied himself not by what he subtracted by by what he added. Verse 7. He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. So the royal son becomes a slave. Paul's talking to Philippians. And at the top of the social ladder were citizens, and the bottom were slaves. And the royal son became a slave, a non person, someone with no rights. 
Christ became what he had never been before without ceasing to be what he had always been. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. What does that mean? It means there was, means there was nothing visually striking about Jesus that would lead anyone to believe that he was anything more than a human. No, no one ever accused Jesus of being handsome. He didn't walk around with a glow or a halo. He was human. means he sweat. He got the flu. He had body odor, bad breath, pimples. He got blisters and splinters and sore muscles and hangnails. And he got sleepy and hungry and thirsty. And he was tempted. There's not a temptation you've experienced that Jesus hasn't experienced. Be it greed, power, money, sex. And after putting on human flesh... And then after putting on servanthood, verse 8 tells us that he put on the final, most violent layer of all, death by crucifixion. You know, we sing freely, lead me to the cross. But 2,000 years ago in first century Philippi, you would, polite people would never even say the word cross in public. You just didn't do that. It wasn't proper. But here, Jesus died on a cross. (laughs) In Philippi, where Roman citizens obsessed with being a somebody instead of a nobody, the gospel announces one who truly was a somebody, yet put himself in a position where He was virtually guaranteed to be misunderstood and mistreated and underestimated. Jesus turned his back voluntarily, decisively, and deliberately on all that belonged to personal glory and all that belonged to personal gain. And he recognized no limit to the extent of his obedience to God in self-humility. And whatever he found to be expendable, he spent it. Nothing was too small to give. He gave it all this is our God the humble servant king who in humility you know what humility is now don't you now that you've been given this this picture you see now what humility is humility is not aw shucks that's not humility humility is the noble choice of putting our strength for the good of others that's humility Humility is when we give our assets and our power and our muscle and our resources for the benefit of others. And so in humility, Jesus sacrificed himself for us. In humility, he put his power at the service of others. In humility, he traded the homage of angels for the hatred of enemies. In humility, he entrusted himself to his heavenly Father's care. In humility, Christ satisfied our sin debt against God by paying for it himself. And all of this to create us, this kingdom people, this colony and embassy of heaven. And whereas Christ acted in total humility, leading to death on a cross, God his Father acted in raising him, super exalting him to the highest place, in giving him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth 
and under the earth, willingly or not, one day, all of the universe will bow the knee to Jesus and proclaim that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's who you worship. Amen? The God we worship is a humble, selfless, loving servant king who entered our world to rescue us from a glory-starved kingdom and to adopt us into his full, glorious kingdom of everlasting life. Jesus did this with his very life. And now he wants us to give of ourselves. See? Someone once said, love begins when someone else's needs are counted as more important than my own. So here we get to the takeaway, church. Here's the takeaway. Here's our homework. It comes in the form of this prayer. Lord, today, whose needs should count more important than my own? Lord, Lord, who do you want me to love today? See, who do you want me to love today? Paul, you know, Paul says in these verses, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Paul assumes that we're looking out for ourselves. He assumes that. So now, you're going to look out for others? You're going to count others more significant than yourselves? That's love. And that's humility. Using your strength in the service of others. Because you see, if Christ truly lives in you, what, what do you have to prove? If Christ is your life, who do you have to impress? And our lives are hidden with Christ in God. So I don't, need to, I don't need to build my puny little empire of Randy. I don't need to market my reputation because it's not I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And if Christ is my life, then, then I can pray for other churches and other pastors and other ministries to grow. And I mean, I can do that because, because I have one king. I have one person to please. That's it. His name is Jesus. His name is Jesus. Who do you want me to love today? Whose needs should I count more important than my own? We do that together and stand firm in that and strive side by side by that and not shrink back in terror on that. I'm going to tell you, that is attractive. People will look at us and they will say, tell me more about your God. And we will. His name is Jesus. Amen.